Welcome to Financial R&R, a show dedicated to financial insurance and risk management solutions and trends shaping the market today. Here are your hosts, Ron Boris and Ryan Farnsworth. Welcome, everyone. This is Ron Boris, and I'm here today with some special guests, Ryan Farnsworth, who, who works with me in the Financial Institutions Group at Alliant. And I also have Brian Dumphy, who leads our Management Professional Solutions team at Alliant, and Steve Chappelle, who leads Claims and, and Legal. And today we're talking SPACs. Obviously, there's been some changes uh, with regard to some regulatory oversight and some changes with regards to some accounting rules that has certainly impacted the flow that we've seen in particular of SPACs. However, I I don't know, Steve, looking at sort of the stats, it's hard to say that things have slowed down at all. We've already seen more SPAC IPOs through the first six months of this year than, than we did in all of 2020, right? Yeah, absolutely. By my count, we're over 350 SPAC IPOs this year. There were 248 last year. So to say that the SPACs have slowed down would be kind of misleading, right? And and certainly when the SEC came out and talked about the treatment they expected of warrants, it did slow down the number of filings and companies going public as there were restatements and companies addressed their S1s to meet with the SEC's expectations on how warrants were going to be treated. But that being said, right, 369 is a lot. We have, I think there's been 301 IPOs completed so far this year. So it is continues to be pretty robust for the year. Yeah. And I know we've certainly been involved and taken a couple public over the last month or so. Brian, you know, obviously in the world that you're overseeing and running, can you talk a little bit about what your team has been sort of working on? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ron. Well, SPACs in the last, I'd say, three months have taken a more judicious approach to listing. What we're seeing now is a shift in the continuum of what SPACs are doing, right? As we're further into the hunting phase of the 240-some-odd SPACs that went in 2020, as well as the ones that launched in January and February, really in what looked like a, a race to the finish line almost now in retrospect, we're seeing a lot more activity in the initial business combination or DSPAC phase of the life cycle. And so there's added strain on the public company DNO market to address those companies being brought into, into the public markets. And so those risks being what they are have presented a, a whole set of not new, but sort of uh, refreshed, maybe a better word to use, refreshed challenges for underwriters as they look to how to deploy capacity in a way that is both supportive to the client, but also protects them as insurers from paying what could be a catastrophic loss in the event of a, of a bad claim. Further to that point, Ryan Farnsworth and I, we recently co-authored a piece for the New York Law Journal on that exact point, Brian, right? This is something that keeps me awake at night. These claims that will come in post a business combination, which we refer to as straddle claims, meaning the claims will come in and the allegations of wrongful conduct will be on both sides of the kind of magic combination date. And that presents some real challenges for the insurance coverage, right, which will be purchased. This tail coverage will often off the shelf have language which will 
exclude coverage for claims which have wrongful acts alleged prior to the business combination or after the business combination, leading insureds in a real tough position if they're taking off-the-shelf language for these this tail cover with no coverage because these claims, by their very nature, allege wrongful acts on both sides of the transaction. And the two most recent ones that were filed this month DraftKings and Carlots both really highlight that that issue where both of those complaints allege these straddle allegations. And the DraftKings one, in addition to the, the straddle allegations, also names SPAC defendants. So it becomes really critically important to your point, Brian, that we really spend a great deal of time on this language because the claims are coming in and the policies are not properly crafted to address this very predictable straddle dilemma, we're going to have some very unhappy clients. And that's going to make the entire industry look bad. I mean, if the breakneck pace of the IPOs that launched in the last 18 to 24 months at the cost that they were incurred to launch and the high retentions, if the coverage doesn't work, that's going to be some significant issues for for us as an industry. And we have to get it right because we've helped SPACs launch. We've helped firms go through the DSPAC process. We see that that needs a lot of work. And especially as these claims come through with all of the allegations that we fear with that type of language, it needs to be done the right way. It needs to be done the, the smart way. And hopefully all of us, clients, lawyers, underwriters and brokers can all understand that it's in everyone's best interest to get it right. Because until until the certainty of, or at least as much certainty as possible comes about what is the expectation for coverage? What is the expectation for the amount of litigation that's going to be brought in the circles of SPACs and DSPACs in the coming years? The market's still going to be very difficult for placement from a retention standpoint, a pricement standpoint, capacity You've said it before, Steve. I think you've been counting. There's there's over 400 SPACs right now that are searching for for an initial business combination, and that brings a lot of other issues which we can discuss separately. But that's also 400 plus policies that need to speak to each other correctly from the SPAC, private company, and DSPAC situation when it comes to the policy language. You're absolutely right about that, Ryan. Right, and you know when I have conversations with some of the claims leadership within some of the markets that are doing this back work, right? We're discussing this dilemma. By my count, 424 SPACs looking for a business combination. At some point, the view is that we'll have some adverse selection going on and that either there'll be some ill-advised business combinations because they're running up against the magic two-year period that they have to either combine or dissolve the trust and or they'll combine and the amount of Experienced leadership management for operating public companies is not an infinite amount of individuals out there, right? There's there's not that many people who with the experience and the talent to run a public company, right? I always liken it to a lobster trap, right? It's kind of easy to get into, but it's really uncomfortable to live in that lobster trap. And unless you're experienced on how you're surviving that lobster trap. Yeah, I think that's going to continue to be a huge focal point. You know, obviously there's some firms that that we work with in the financial institution segment that that's their their business, right? Is recruiting people to run companies, you know, particularly in the private equity segment. And you know, I would say from from our perspective, those are the clients that we continue to see making the investments and putting together the infrastructure to continue to successfully offer these SPACs or launch these SPACs 
quite frankly, because I think it's just part of their DNA, right? They're very comfortable in doing so. They have a very robust set of policies and procedures associated with sourcing businesses, recruiting management teams, focusing on governance at that level. I think what you're probably going to see a shift in is you know, some of the, the other firms. Because let's face it, I mean, when you look at 2020 and, and the first part of 2021, it was pretty easy for people to enter into the SPAC game. It didn't require a lot of capital. It didn't require a lot of background information, et cetera. Pretty much anybody could launch a SPAC. You, you saw a lot of celebrity SPACs. I, I certainly think that aspect of the industry is starting to simmer a, a little bit. To your point though, right, Steve, because they're just there's a concern about just supply and demand of of adequate people to to essentially step in and, and run these businesses post-business combination. And that's certainly where the the plaintiff's attorneys are going to be focused, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be very hard. It's going to be a high standard for them to go and just attack anyone for the sake of attacking them as a SPAC. But if they start getting wind that these businesses are not being run effectively as public companies from a governance and from a regulatory perspective, that's where they're going to try to sink their teeth and go after folks. And, And I'm sure that's what's probably keeping some of these folks on the insurance carrier side up at night. The interesting thing about that, just sort of in a broader context, Ron, is that when you look at the first half results for the number of securities class action claims filed broadly, irrespective of sector, is that it's way down against historical averages. It's something that we're watching. I think it's down like four. We haven't seen the mid-year report, but according to just basic back of the napkin math, it looks like it's down about 40% year over year compared to the same time last year. Which and 2020 was down against 2019, but this year it's they're decidedly down. Yet within that, the number of claims, as we were talking about before, against companies that have gone through a DSPAC transaction makes up a relatively sizable percentage of that overall number. And to your point, I, I wonder if people are just, if plaintiffs' attorneys, that is, are just waiting to get back in the game on what could be the soon-to-be avalanche of DSPAC transactions. Don't know. It's something that, to watch and, and keep an eye on because if the trend continues, we'll be at the lowest level of SCAs filed in over five years, I believe, if my memory serves correct. You're spot on, Brian. That That's the right math, right? This is a historic norm in the last four or five years, about 180 for the first half, and we were at 108 this year. So that's encouraging, you know, big picture. But to your point, right, it was 14% of those claims. And now 14% of the claims as of today are SPAC related. And that is a, a legitimate thing for us to keep our eye on. Some of them really have nothing to do with the SPAC, right? They, it was just a vehicle. And, you know, the fact that it was a SPAC is not really that relevant other than two years ago, right? It came about via SPAC. Yeah, you know, I had a conversation just this past week with a public company CFO um, and kind of was raising those statistics. And, and the question is, well, if that's the case, right, that should be a good thing for underwriters, right? Shouldn't that mean that the market should somewhat you know, stabilize and, and come a little bit more buyer friendly? And it will be interesting, right? Because I think right now, everybody's sort of a little surprised by that number, just given how far off it's been from what the trend has been over the last decade, per se. I think certainly in the back arena, 
we are seeing claims. There have been securities class action claims filed. And now, as you know, Steve, right, doing this for, for a while, uh, this is long tail stuff. Uh, unfortunately, these claims don't resolve themselves in a matter of weeks or even months. And in some cases, they can take over a year. So we're really fortunate to have you uh, and your team kind of keeping a close eye on this stuff, tracking it very carefully, certainly you know, enables our, our clients in this area to, to find a more rewarding way to manage their risk and, and sort of manage their dollars with regards to how they're spending money on insurance and, and thinking about these types of transactions. And listen, from my perspective, I feel like we can continue to talk about these things right every week if we wanted to. But you know, I'm just really excited and thankful to have three colleagues like you all to just be able to talk about this stuff and, and be able to you know, put together this type of format to share our experience and our knowledge with our clients and the broader industry. So with that, we'll conclude our conversation for today. Thanks for, for taking some time out of your busy schedules to record this. For those of you listening, if you want more information on, on our team or Alliant in general, you can visit our website at www.alliant.com. But otherwise, stay tuned for our next podcast and hope you all have a great day and talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.